Broadcasting from the Business Radio X studio in Alpharetta, it's time for Profit Sense with Bill McDermott. Good morning. Welcome to Profit Sense. This podcast dives into the stories behind some of Atlanta's successful businesses and business owners and the professionals that advise them. We help local business leaders get the word out about the important work they're doing to serve their market, their community, and their profession. I'm your host, Bill McDermott, and this show is presented by The Profitability Coach. When business owners want to increase their profitability, they don't often have the expertise to know where to start or what to do. I leverage my knowledge and relationships from 32 years as a banker to identify the hurdles getting in the way and create a plan to deliver profitability they never thought possible. We have three great guests on the show today. Uh, Neely Shaw, who's an attorney with her own firm. Neely, welcome. Thanks for having me, Bill. I'm really excited to be here. And we're excited to have you. Richard Grove with Wall Control. Richard, so glad to have you here. Glad to be here. Thanks a lot, Bill. And Tim Fulton with Small Business Matters. Tim, welcome to Profit Sense. Thank you, Bill. It's a pleasure to be with you. Neely, I'm going to start with you. So uh, you and I, I think, originally met through the Exit Planning Exchange. I'll give a quick shout out to XPX. That's right. And uh, have gotten to know each other. And you were in big law for a while and launched out on your own and have been doing this for quite a while. Tell our audience about your practice and why you decided to launch out on your own. Sure. Um, so uh, my practice is a traditional uh, trust and estates practice um, in, you know, in the sense that I work with individuals, closely held businesses and business owners, and um, I, I work with nonprofits as well. Um, so with individuals, I do, you know, wills, trust, tr- typical planning. And then uh, with business owners, I tend to work on the succession and exit planning side. And within that, uh, we do a good bit of charitable planning. So working, you know, creating charitable trusts as part of the exit, uh, uh, private foundations, uh, public charities, that kind of stuff. Um, why I went out on my own, it, it, it's a, it, it, so uh, over, I've been practicing for about 11 years. And initially when I started, there were a lot of big law firms that had a traditional trust and estates practice. Over the years, we saw, you know, this trend where um, estate planning practices were moving out of big law. And I think that was because it just doesn't really fit the big law business model as well. And I felt that as well. And, you know, that blended with, uh, uh, you know, kind of our, us starting our family, wanting more flexibility. Um, it really lended well to me, um, you know, going to a boutique practice and then eventually starting my own practice. Um, Yeah. And you've been incredibly successful. We're going to talk a little bit more about succession and business planning here shortly. Um, But I'm wondering uh, if you could share with our audience, what do you feel like has gone really, really well uh, since you've launched out? And if you had to do it over again, would you do anything differently? Yeah, it's it's a funny story. So things that I thought were going to be difficult, uh, which is, you know, lead generation, client acquisition, were actually... It turned out, luckily, I felt feel very grateful and blessed that they were not so difficult because um, I had been practicing for a while and I had a network um, of folks. But uh, what was difficult was, you know, and, and that's kind of what we're here for is is the running the business side of it, right? The uh, it, it, it it's a business. A law firm is a business, and I don't think I realized going into it how much administrative 
um, work and how many administrative tasks there are to get done in a day. And I, I, you know, I always run out of time when it comes to that side of things. So I think that's been challenging. And I think I would try to have better systems and process in, in place um, at the get go, as opposed to now having implemented it, you know, um, three, four years into the practice. We're talking with Neely Shaw. Neely believes that for any well-drafted estate plan to work in practice, it must also work within the family dynamics of each unique family structure. And that's why she works hard to create a confidential environment where clients feel comfortable sharing their family's unique goals and challenges. I want to go on to talk a little bit about, uh, you mentioned uh, in a prior conversation that we had that your sweet spot is working with business owners, roughly 10 years tenure, thinking about an exit. What are the critical items that a business owner should be thinking about prior to their exit? So what I find when I work with business owners is, is, um, a lack of clarity and, and, you know, so what I encourage whenever I work with business owners at the onset is for them to know their gaps. And there's three gaps that I specifically focus on. So there's the wealth gap. There's the value gap, and then there's the profit gap. Um, the wealth gap uh, is, you know, kind of it's a, it's your number, right? What's your number? What do you you know? What do you want? What's your net worth goal to be when you retire? And where are you right now? Right. That the difference is the wealth gap. The value gap specifically deals with the business. Um, so the business itself. Do you know what the value of your business is currently? And what I find is oftentimes business owners don't exactly know the true value of their business. They maybe have an idea of what it's worth, but but may not know the exact value. So, you know, and, and where you want that value to be to get to your wealth gap. So it kind of all relates back to it. And that's your value gap. And then same thing with profitability and profit gap. You know, where does your profitability need to be for you to get to that value to ultimately then get to your wealth gap. So they, they kind of all relate and they, um, you know, uh, connected to each other, but those three numbers gives you clarity and sense of direction in where you are and where you need to be from a business perspective, as well as a personal financial perspective. And then the third leg of that stool is the, the final act. I always, um, focus on this as, as well, as well as, you know, like, what do you envision doing after this transfer? You know, if you're thinking about exiting, what does that next step look like? So um, I think I start with clarity. And then, you know, uh, the other very important piece is, is a team. Do you have a team? Um, you know, typically you need a financial advisor, a CPA, uh, a business attorney, uh, a estate planning attorney, and a business consultant kind of all on the same bus, driving in the same direction. And right. that's not usually the case. So that's kind of the second goal. Yeah, it really takes a village, doesn't it? It does. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. And you did a really excellent job of talking about the gaps. I'd never really thought about it from that perspective, but but that is so spot on. So in your experience, what are the pluses and minuses of selling to an insider, specifically a family member? Uh, And then in a second, uh, same question if you're selling to an outsider, such as a strategic or financial buyer. But let's talk about selling to an insider first, like a family member. Sure. Um, so the obvious one, right? It's the legacy, right? Um, and, you know, it's, it's the American dream, right? Like you have your family business. It's, you know, generational legacy. It's a, it's identity for that family. So that's obviously the, the biggest um, 
pro uh, for a sale to an insider. Um, you know, the other things I would say is, you know, it's low cost. Um, there you can retain a level of control uh, within the family. And, and it's usually the least disruptive for um, your clients, your employees, um, you know, because there's a sense of continuity. Um, so the, but the cons to that is also, you know, a business and family are two very different concepts, right? Things you allow in family are things that, you know, you you typically don't want in a business where, you know, you, you're showing, you know, kind of preferential treatment or you're allowing things to slide. Not going to do that in a business. So there's that conflict. Um, there's family dynamic conflict that comes in a family business. So that's a con. And then um, it's the least liquid of an option as far as a transfer, right? So uh, if if you your goal is a family transfer, you really need to have a have focused on retirement planning outside of that business because you're not going to get the highest value for your business if you're selling to an insider, or you may not get any value because a lot of times, if you know parent is transferring to their children, they may want to gift it to them. Right. So then you're not getting any. You know, there's no liquidity event happening. So maybe you need to have an alternative plan for retirement. So that's you know some of the pros and cons of insider. I know you also asked me about the yeah. outside sale. Did you want me to go ahead and? Yeah, please do. Talk a little bit about selling to an outsider. Sure. So um, uh, the pro for a, a strategic buyer is always going to be you are going to get the most value, right? The highest value if you have a strategic buyer coming in and making an offer for your business. Um, but the the con is all you know to that is going to be it's a more complicated process. You're going to have to hire this, this, have this team working for you, maybe some M&A professionals, um, you know, um, all of those things. So, but, but the other, also the other uh, pro for a outside uh, strategic buyer coming in is, is there's very clear deal terms, which I think, you know, is often overlooked. Um, When you have a family transfer, you know, yes, you retain control, but that's a double-edged sword. Here, you walk away because you've sold to a strategic buyer and there's very clear deal terms of what is expected of you. If you need to stick around for two years, you know, these are your responsibilities. Um, And so kind of, you know, for every weakness, there's a strength, right? And for every strength, there's a weakness. So the correlation to that is that, that transition for the owner to go from the owner to maybe an employee or a consultant tends to be very difficult. So, you know, I mean, I think there's pros and cons to both. Uh, the the most significant to many business owners being, you know, liquidity issue. Do you need that liquidity? And how important is it for you to keep the business within the family? And you need pre-planning for that. Sure. All excellent points. So we're talking with Neely Shaw from the law office of Neely Shaw today. They believe that planning for your future should be purposeful and practical. Uh, they work with and or help to develop a collaborative team of advisors committed to navigating the planned and unplanned transitions of life. And life always has a way of uh, dealing with surprises, does it not? Yep. So speaking on that topic, uh, failing to plan is planning to fail. Uh, I didn't originate that quote, but, uh, but it's certainly one that has stuck with me. Uh, many business owners don't do sufficient personal planning prior to their exit. So what are some disasters that can occur if they're not careful? Yeah. Uh, so up until this point, you know, we've kind of been focusing on a planned exit, right? We've been talking to a transfer to 
uh, insiders or a transfer to a strategic buyer. What we haven't really talked about is an unplanned exit. And that's a big portion of what I work with my clients on educating them, right? So there's the the, the five Ds, the death, disability, divorce, um, and, uh, you know, kind of just the, the business sides of kind of dissolution. So uh, you are... It's very important. So like from a value maturity perspective, there's the identify your value, then you protect your value. And then you have, you know, har- like har- you're harvesting or, or growing that value and then harvesting and then essentially maintaining. So a lot of times business owners will skip to this third point of growing value. Like they're very focused on, I want to grow value. They're skipping over, have I identified where I am? What's my status quo? Because it's important to know where you are to figure out where you're going. And then that second portion of protecting what you have, which is, you know, do you have enough liability coverage? Do you have enough life insurance? Do you have disability coverage? Have you done your estate planning? Because if there's a disability or a, um, a death, unfortunately, of the business owner, and that business owner has uh, a lot of, you know, all the processes and systems in their head, that is a loss of value. That's a true loss of value that is gone with that business owner. And and the business will actually see that decline in value, um, you know, over time, whether it's, you know, employees having to recreate the, those processes because they're going to have a family member who can continue to run the business, or now the estate is having to sell the business as part of the estate, and you're not going to get the same value as you would have, you know, if this business was less owner dependent, for example. So um, I've seen a lot of disasters in terms of just the significant loss of value and the unpreparedness of the family. So the family thinks, oh, we've got this great business that's providing us a lot of income, right? And and it tends to be... Um, so the other part is the business owners tend to be very illiquid, right? So the business is 60 to 80% of their total assets mm-hmm. and they haven't done other liquidity planning around retirement or other kind of, you know, unplanned events. So the family is very unprepared because families used to this income coming in sure. on a monthly basis. And now all of a sudden that stops and they are really having to adjust li- their lifestyle because there wasn't proper life insurance planning. There wasn't a properly executed will uh, and now they're stuck in probate for, you know, two to three years. They're having to liquidate their businesses and they're not getting the value that they thought for that business. So um, that protection is a very important step not to be skipped. Yeah, that is so true. And last question, I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about some of the tax consequences. Uh, what are some of those consequences that a business owner should plan for prior to a sale of their business? Right. So, you know, a, a business is a capital asset, right? So a sale of a business, um, it's, it's income, uh, and it's, it's going to have capital, um, gains consequences to it. So depending on what the sale price is going to be and depending on what the cost base is for that business, right? If the, if you started the business from scratch and it's really kind of this service oriented business without having equipment, that basis is going to be fairly low, which means you're looking at a fairly, big capital gains um, tax, you know, and and it can be a sticker shock for a lot of business owners. And so, um, again, we're going back to that collaborative team, you know, getting all the people on the bus and everybody driving on the same, in the same direction. Uh, You know, a well-prepared business owner will know this, you know, 
three to four or five years pre-exit. And so they'll be prepared for it. They'll have maybe come up with some ideas and options about, hey, am I, you know, if I'm charitably oriented, maybe I should contribute some of, you know, my uh, percentage of my business into a charitable remainder trust and then have the charitable remainder trust sell portion of that so that it's not all capital, you know, leading to a capital gains tax. Maybe the the charitable portion, because it's a tax-exempt trust, is not going to create a, 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 a tax in that year of sale, and I can take it out as an annuity over time, and then I'm paying the taxes over maybe, say, you know, 10, 20-year time period. So there's a lot of strategies you can plan around for income tax purposes uh, as part of an exit. Um, it's just you need pre-planning for it, right? You need to figure out, you know, what your plan is, and, and then your CPA, your financial advisor, uh, and your state tax attorney can come up with a, a solution for you that works well for you. So just you know, keep that in mind and plan for it. And then in addition to income tax, there's an estate tax and a gift tax. Um, gift tax comes into effect with um, uh, planning for internal planning for children. So again, keep in mind that there's taxes involved and, you know, just plan for it and be mindful of that. Sure. All ex- excellent points. Uh, if we have any business owners listening uh, and they're looking for a good attorney, what's the best way for them to reach you? Sure. Uh, you know, just give me a call. Uh, uh, my phone number is 404-988-4922. And that's the law offices of Neely Shaw. If your preference is email, um, you can reach me at nshaw, which is N-S-H-A-H at com, And that's spelled N-E-E-L-I-S-H-A-H-L-A-W.com. Neely, it's a delight to have you on the show today. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. This was fun. So, Richard, excited to uh, be talking with you today. And thanks again for coming on Profit, uh, Profit Sense. You've got quite a story with uh, being the chief operating officer of, uh, of Wall Control. So tell us a little bit about Wall Control, uh, what you do, who you do it for, and why you do it. Certainly, Bill, and thanks for having me on. Uh, it's good to be here. So, Wall Control, as you mentioned, we're family-owned and operated business. So, Neely, that was really helpful information, too, off the talk. But anyway, so, um, yeah, so we're in wall-mounted storage, um, pretty much any room in the house, garage, uh, shop, commercial, industrial, all kind of applications. Basically, anywhere there's a blank wall, you can put wall control and and store things. So, um, we started back in 2001. Um, we're, our story actually goes back to the sixties. We're old school tool and die shop, um, in metal stamping and manufacturing and have evolved over the years. My granddad started it in 1968. Wow. He's 82. He still works four days a week. Just, he just loves it. You know, that's so, incredible. Um, so in, uh, in the early two thousands, we started seeing a lot of our work go offshore to Mexico. Um, we'd get a call from, uh, some automotive manufacturer and they'd say, Hey, um, we got capacity in Mexico. A truck's going to be there tomorrow. Put all of our dies on the truck. It's, it's going, it's going South. So, um, we, we saw a lot of vulnerability there. Um, as we started to see things leave our shop, cause we owned none of this tooling, none of this equipment was ours. We were just contracted to produce parts or tooling. So, um, we had actually built wall control, uh, prototypes for ourselves. We we saw a need in our own manufacturing facility and we were basically, at the time in the market, there was traditional press board pegboard that would wear out and 
bad with grease and oil and just the rough industrial environment or extremely overkill expensive uh, storage options that that frankly we couldn't afford. So um, we created this system ourselves because we had lasers and press brakes and all these things. And so in the early 2000s, when things started started leaving our shop, we said we need a product that's going to be um, our own house product that can't leave, that will keep our tool and die makers, our presses, all these things busy. So we uh, tooled up to mass produce it, um, got patents or pursued patents and received them. Um, you know, trademark basically put a business together around this system that we that we had. Um, and I can kind of keep going, but so we, my story with wall control begins in 2008. Uh, my dad, and my granddad were trying to get it going. They're tool and die guys. The marketing piece of it, the you know, the online piece of it, just is a bit foreign to them by nature of their their trade. So um, my background was in mechanical engineering. I worked for the DoD. Uh, I loved my job. It was super fulfilling. It was really cool. Um, but I, it's hard to put your mark on the Department of Defense, you know. So, so it's just a, it, I'm I'm more of I like that individualistic. Uh, let's see what I can do, um, untethered kind of thing. So I took a chance. I took a pay cut. I went to go work for the family. Um, did tool and die, half tool and die, kind of half wall control. And after a year or so, um, wall control began taking all. I mean, it was all my time, and so. Uh, we started out as an online brand and have really grown kind of out of that. I mean, we're it's still, especially these days, gone back to that uh, large percentage. But um, I was able to take it and kind of have a vision for it and execute on that and take it from me and a guy in a warehouse to, you know, we have 50 plus employees, more if you add in the folks over at our manufacturing plant who are responsible for producing it. Wow. Um uh, nice facility. We could use a bigger one, but we're trying to grow responsibly. So anyways, it's been, that's, that's kind of the, the high level journey of, um, wall control, the family business and myself. So, yeah. And it's such a great story and probably more, but just to take it from virtually a startup, uh, to 50 people, uh, is, uh, is absolutely incredible. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, I think I've read, uh, 80% of businesses fail within the first five years. Uh, and so growing it over time that you have is is really a credit to you and your team. Uh, kind of fast forwarding to present day, I know a lot of companies like yours that work with metal are dealing with material cost and labor issues. Uh, it's uncharted territory for many businesses right now. How do you deal with that? And what's your path going to be going forward? Yeah, it really is. It's it's just unprecedented what steel's doing right now. Um, and really corrugate resin, all these things that go into making up our product line. So, um, we're, we're kind of taking it day by day, week by week, month by month and seeing where these costs, where the pricing goes on raw materials. But, um, I think we're fortunate to have a, a pretty flexible, uh, distribution model. Um, so we sell through major retailers. Uh, it's mostly all online, which is helpful. Also, um, we also have, uh, good direct sales channels. So either through our own website or marketplaces where we can control some of the costing and some of the the list pricing. Um, So between all that, we can kind of manage where our most profitable channels are and Mm -hmm. kind of put the attention on that. So, um, and likewise with our product line by turning on and off certain inventory, we can drive profit. We might lose a little bit of selection when it comes to, you know, color assortment or specific things, but we can still, we can still um, meet our customers with the most, uh, 
you know, robust and versatile system out there with the most options. So um, we've got some, we've got a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of, uh, I guess, mitigating measures that we kind of keep in our back pocket and secret from others to help drive that growth and keep, stay profitable in a time where raw material costs are going off the charts. Literally, it's just nuts. But um, so, yeah, so far, so good. And we have a good plan, I think, for the rest of the year. And then hopefully by the end of the year, things start to stabilize a little bit and we can go back to kind of like what you were saying, Neely, about there's the there's the, the the running the business side of it that tends to take up way more work than, you know, the finding leads and getting business. And so meeting the demand is something it's a great blessing of a problem to have. Um, but trying to, trying to put all the pieces behind the scenes together so that you can sell your product for a profit and meet the demand that's out there at a price point they're willing to pay. Um, that's, that's what I spend most of my time doing right now. Yeah. And both of you have really raised a point that I think is, is interesting and and certainly going to talk a little bit about shortly in our third with our third guest, Tim, uh, but having that business owner mindset, uh, certainly working in the business and driving value takes up a lot of time, but actually working on the business, uh, figuring out what are your strategic initiatives, what are your issues, what are the, the things that are getting in the way, uh, something I've really seen in, in my practice as well. A lot of business owners spend a ton of time creating value and working in the business, but sometimes don't take the time to work on the business. So we're talking today with Richard Grove, Chief Operating Officer of Wall Control, and Wall Control is committed to being the industry leader in pegboard style storage and organization. Simply put, no other tool storage system can match the quality, versatility, and value of the award-winning Wall Control system. And Richard, I want to go back a little bit to uh, to the story as far as uh, working in the family business. So was it a foregone conclusion uh, that you were going to work in the family business, and what was it like going from working in a large government agency uh, to you know going with Wall Control, which at that point was essentially a startup? Yeah, thanks, Bill. So it wasn't a wasn't a foregone conclusion actually um, uh, that I would go back to work for Wall Control. I I started out in engineering because I I enjoyed what I saw in the tool and die shop and working there in summers as, as a, as a kid growing up, um, the machines, the, the engineering piece of it fascinated me. So I knew I wanted to be an engineer, but I, I didn't have, you know, a goal of coming back to work for the family. Um, so I went to school, graduated, started to work for the DOD, um, really enjoyed my job. And what brought me back to wall control or walk to the family business to cap tool and die. What brought me back was, um, seeing this thing that, my dad and granddad were kind of struggling to take to market and thinking I could, I could, I could add value there and just a, a calling to kind of do something else for myself um, that, that I could put my mark on, like I was saying earlier. So when I left, uh, I, you know, I left a little bit scared cause I had no idea how all that was going to turn out sure. at the time going back to between 2001, 2002 to 2008 when I come, when I came, um, the cap to one die was losing a lot of money trying to support wall control and get this thing off the ground. And when I came in, it was, it was at a loss to the company. So they were taking as much a chance on me as I was on coming back or coming to the company to begin with. And so, um, able, being able to turn that around and especially getting into 2010 and some, some other downturns 
where wall control was able to be there for the manufacturing plant. And if it weren't for, if it weren't for wall control, things might've turned out differently. Um, that was really special to me to see that. So, um, kind of that, that, that junction between them needing me and me needing them and seeing where it might go. That's what brought me back. So, yeah, a lot of times it's not about, uh, climbing the corporate ladder or chasing dollars, but it's Mm -hmm. about something that really gives work purpose and meaning. Absolutely. So even fast forwarding, if I'm not mistaken today, marks your 13th anniversary with the firm. Yes, sir. And so talk a little bit about the things that you've accomplished that you're most proud of and maybe some lessons learned from a couple of recessions in the last 13 years. Um, I think that there's a lot of things I'm proud of. I think going back to the family business, I'm proud of how there's, I think, seven of us that are all in the family that work together um, wow. on a you know more or less day-to-day basis. So That's great. The fact we can all work together, the fact that um, I was able to hire my brother, my sister, my mom, um, you know, on just the wall control side. So seeing that uh, personally is special, uh, seeing the growth that the company's had and, you know, the value it's brought to other people, our employees, um, uh, just the impact that's had kind of farther reaching than obviously just the family. Um, as far as navigating downturns and recessions, I'm I'm proud of I'm proud with how we've managed to find opportunity in times where, you know, people were, you know, scared and cowering and not taking action, almost paralyzed by it. We were able to find opportunity and, you know, some of those times are where we grew the most. So starting out, I I was talking to you um, kind of on the phone about how most of these larger manufacturers, they've always been wholesale. It's always been selling bulk, you know, distributors will figure it out, that kind of thing. So we had to cut our teeth online and direct to consumer shipping, individual boxes, drop ship, all these things that, um, especially during COVID when, when everything moved online, we were ready to go. Like we had a streamline operation, you know, one to two day turn times on direct drop ship orders. And, um, while a lot of big behemoths were struggling to catch up with that sort of model from, uh, you know, the, the big distributors like Amazon and all of them, they're, you know, they're great at what they do, but it's their suppliers who aren't particularly good at that. So, you know, Amazon fulfillment centers, when they fill up, that overflow would go to a direct fulfillment model out of our own warehouse. And we could do that. Well, a lot of places can't. Wow. A lot of bigger places can't. Yeah. And so if someone wants to get in touch with you or get in touch with wall control, what's the best way for them to reach you? Um, wallcontrol.com um, would be our primary website. We operate a couple of different brands, but um, if you're looking to get in touch with me specifically, my email address is rdgrove at wallcontrol.com. Um, if you're looking to familiarize yourself with the brand, yeah, wallcontrol.com would be your best bet. And we also have a retailer's page where you can look at uh, you know different places that offer our product that might make the most sense for you to purchase from. Sure. Well, Richard, congratulations on 13 years, and here's to uh, 13 more. Excited to have you on the show, and, and again, job well done. Yeah, thank you for having me on. And so, Tim Fulton. Tim, you and I have known each other probably – 15 years uh, through uh, uh, various intersections, but I uh, uh, have shared with others that I've always been envious of, uh, of your career path. I mean, 16 years as a Vistage chair, uh, doing a lot of uh, peer group work, 
you have uh, also launched Small Business Matters, helping small business owners uh, address uh, the issues of the day. Um, and I know I could never do this, but uh, walking the El Camino in Spain, 500 miles, and not once, but twice in the past five years. So, uh, uh, so delighted to have you on the show. And uh, also, uh, uh, to put icing on the cake, an author, I think you've just recently published your third book. So, Tim, so glad to have you on the show today. Thank you, Bill, and it's a pleasure to be with you. I, I'm just in awe of of your other guests today. I've been sitting here just listening and taking taking notes. Uh, Neely helps uh, business owners do what I think is one of the hardest things, and and try to figure out their future, try to try to script an, an exit strategy. And then, uh, you know, Richard was talking about a family owned business, three generations, uh, seven family members involved. I can't get my family to plan a, a meal, more or less, <laughs> you know, get them involved in a business. I'm, I'm, I'm just in awe of, of both of your guests today. Well, and so you certainly have, uh, have a lot to add uh, to this discussion as well. So um, we're going to talk a little bit about your book shortly. Uh, but I know you've been le- leading peer groups for years. So for our business owner listeners out there, what's the advantage of a peer group for business owners? Yeah, Bill, that's that's a great question. I've been very fortunate for 16 years. I was a Vistage chair. Vistage is the world's largest peer group organization. I think I counted that I've uh, hosted uh, over 600 meetings wow. for, for over 200 uh, CEOs. And uh, I was just very fortunate to, to be able to do that. Currently, I've got two virtual mastermind groups uh, that I facilitate. And when I ask them, you know, what brings you to this group? What interests you in being in a, in a group like this? I hear a, a couple things uh, quite often. One is I think many business owners find that it, it's, it's lonely at the top. You know, they don't have a lot of other people that they can talk to about their businesses, particularly the difficult issues, not, you know, when they get a new account or they make a big sale, but when they've got to maybe let an employee go or they're having cash issues. And so they feel isolated. They feel lonely uh, being at the top of their business. And so, you know, with a peer group, that gives them an audience, someone that they can share not only the good news, but the bad news and talk about their most difficult issues. So that's one, is it? alleviates some of the feeling of isolation that many business owners find, particularly small business owners. The second thing I find is that many of the people that join peer groups like these, their, their growth, they have a what's referred to as a growth mindset. They, they know an awful lot, but they also know that there's a lot that they don't know. And they, they believe that being a part of a peer group helps raise their level of awareness about running their business and what works and what doesn't work and best practices and, and such. And so they, they, they learn from the other members in the group, try to learn from the mistakes maybe of, of their, their, their peers. And so that's something else that I find brings people to a peer group. I just want to be around other like-minded, you know, growth-minded people. And the, the third thing that I find is they find that being a, in a peer group helps them anticipate the changes that they're going to see in their business as they see other businesses um, uh, uh, addressing these problems, whether it's issues in in finding people that so many small businesses are finding now and, and keeping their best people, 
or, or challenges around technology. What's the next tool? What's the next piece of technology? And they hear someone else has had an experience with, with a, a certain software platform, and they think, okay, that's, that's something I need to know because someday I'll need to look at, at adding that piece of software to my business. So it helps them anticipate you know, the changes that take place in small business. And, and no secret that you know, small businesses fa- face an avalanche of change. Just think over the last year – all the changes that we have faced and how businesses are operating. So those are the three things that I hear most commonly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think you may have even suggested that I read this book, but there is a book out by Carol Dweck uh, called Mindset, where she clearly defines uh, the difference between a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. Could you maybe elaborate a little bit more for the uh, business owner on what a growth mindset looks like in your view? Sure. And, and I would highly recommend that book. Dr. Carol Dweck, uh, the book is called Mindset. She did a TED Talk that was, was excellent as well about the book. But the idea is that uh, many people, not all, have what, what she refers to as a growth mindset. And a growth mindset is just an appetite for learning, for advancing, for, for understanding that, again, we, we know just a little bit about this universe and, and a desire to learn as much as possible, as quickly as possible. And so it's, it's, uh, it's a willingness to learn from our mistakes rather than when I make a mistake, you know, getting really frustrated and, and blaming everyone I can, you know, possible for the mistake. It's saying, okay, this is something I'm going to learn from. This is something that's going to allow me to grow and not make the same mistake again versus someone with what's referred to as a fixed mindset believes that they're that they're you know not as capable of making mistakes and so when they do make a mistake they chalk it off to uh, someone else they blame someone else or you know they refuse to to learn from what they did so that they can handle that same situation differently the next time so many entrepreneurs i believe have a growth mindset you almost have to i think to be successful uh, in small business Great points. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your book, uh, The Meeting, uh, and I also want to talk about uh, the peer group meetings that uh, you've not only experienced, but the book also mentions uh, the group processes issues. Uh, Growth, as you mentioned, is always one of them. Uh, Talk about growth challenges for business owners and other common issues processed in peer groups. But talk about your book first. Sure. So, Bill, this is my third book. The the third, the first book was called Small Business Matters. The second, Small Business Matters, and all that jazz. And they were a collection of articles and blog postings that I'd written over maybe a twenty-year time period. So, the third book, I, I think I lost my mind because I decided to do something different. I, I really began like I enjoy reading business fiction. Patrick Lencioni is one of my favorite authors, and he's written a number of best-selling business fiction books, particularly for small business owners. So I mm-hmm. thought, well, I'll write a business fiction. How difficult can that be? And so often as, as a Vistage chair, I'd get people asking me, so what is it like in those meetings? What happens when you know, a dozen CEOs get together for a day to talk about their business? So I thought, okay, so we'll, we'll look behind the curtains. And so I wrote this book about a one-day peer group meeting from start to finish, and during the course of the meeting, members have an opportunity to bring their their toughest decisions, their biggest issues to the group to, to allow the group to help them process those decisions and hopefully make, make better decisions. So during the course of the book, uh, <clears throat> several different uh, members bring issues to the group. 
And they're the most, what I found is some of the most common issues that come to a peer group. One of them was about growth and a, a business owner struggling, trying to figure out how to accelerate the growth of their business. And Bill, a lot of the clients that come to me, and I know you, you see the same thing, they, they have growth issues. It's usually their business is growing too fast and they can't control that growth, putting way too much pressure on their people, on their capital, mm-hmm. on their infrastructure, or the business isn't growing fast enough. They, they've hit a, a, a ceiling of sort. They just can't figure out how to get the business back into growth mode. And so that was the case with this particular issue in, in, in the book was a, a member whose the growth of their business had stalled and they were looking for strategies to, to get that growth back on track, to stimulate the, the, the growth. And so the, the group goes about asking questions and then helping that member identify a couple of specific growth strategies to help, help the business grow. There's also a, a different issue, but a very common issue in the book, and that's around personnel, but particularly around managing difficult people. Now, I, I know that, that uh, Richard and Neely have never had this experience you know, when they've had to deal with difficult people. Bill, you've never had a difficult. No. But there are businesses that have difficult employees, and it's a very common issue that comes into a peer group. Is a, so I've got this, this employee, Tim, and he's, he's, he's performing okay, but boy, is he difficult to deal with. Nobody wants to work with Tim, and he's not in line with our culture. He's not in line with our core values. And what do I do with Tim? And so that was an issue that came to the group during this this fictional meeting. And we technically we, we refer to this employee as a terrorist. We do that very carefully, <laughs> but it's the it's the terrorist employee. And and what do we do with a terrorist employee? And so that's just another topic that comes up during during the the course of the, of the meeting. Another one, the third one is is Bill. I know is near and dear to your heart, and it's a company that has cash flow issues. And, you know, business is doing okay. They're making sales, but with every sale, they have a little less cash. And, and, and so what are the, what, what's the solution for that? How can we bulk up on the, on the cash flow in the business? How can we improve on that? Where do we find capital for growth? All those things that I know you work hard to help your clients with. So those are just a couple of issues that are discussed during the course of the, of, of this meeting and, and discussed in the book itself. Wow, that's uh, that's a, a rich uh, content that you've talked about. You know, uh, when you were talking about those terrorists, it, it reminded me of another book. I think you and I are are both big readers, but uh, the book "The Energy Bus" uh, by John Gordon and Neely mentioned earlier about uh, uh, getting the right people on the bus, and then of course the other thing is making sure they're in the right seats. Uh, generally, uh, people you want people on your bus that are. Uh, that give energy, uh, that, and those are typically people that, uh, share the core values of the organization, uh, are in the right seat, meaning the, uh, the particular function within the organization they're doing. They, they get it, they want it, and they have the capacity to do it. Uh, and then there are, now this, the book calls them energy vampires. Uh, they literally suck the life out of the, uh, management team and the organization. And of course, the driver of the bus is ultimately the one responsible for who comes on the bus and who, who stays on the bus. So, uh, so all excellent points there. And, you know, the, the cash flow issue, uh, to your point, I've found in my experience is really a function of, of getting the right people and getting them in the right seats, uh, having a well articulated strategy, obviously execution and then cash flow is really all about figuring out ways to either eliminate mistakes, 
uh, shorten cycle times or or improve business models. And so I want to, in closing, talk a little bit about this uh, uh, this book and also talk about your experience. Talk a little bit about facilitating meetings. Uh, what are some do's and don'ts along with some best practices for facilitating meetings? Sure. Bill, one of my favorite books on meetings is by the author I referenced earlier, Patrick Lencioni. And he wrote a book aptly titled Death by Meetings. And I think it's the best book ever written about about wow. meetings and the different types of meetings. And in the book, Lencioni suggests there are different types of meetings that every business should have, starting with an, an annual meeting and uh, a planning meeting, a quarterly meeting, uh, which is about reviewing that, that business plan that was constructed, monthly meetings that are meant to address some of the strategic issues going on within the company and also some of the tactical, weekly meetings that tend to be more tactical in nature. And then he also recommends one of my favorite types of meetings, and that's the daily huddle, 10-minute or so meeting that uh, a team gets together, key executives get together just to talk about what's going on within the business uh, on that particular day. So step one is, is identifying, okay, what kind of meeting is this? At, at what altitude, so to speak, are we, are we going to have our discussion in this meeting? I always thought, you know, when I facilitate meetings, I think of myself almost as a like a movie director. Uh, and I've got to think about, okay, who, what, I've got to have a script for the meeting. And the script is usually the meeting agenda, which I think is really important. Um, in fact, I'm reluctant to attend a meeting that doesn't have an agenda because an agenda essentially says, this is an important meeting and this is what we're going to talk about. So that's the first thing is, is for every person hosting a meeting, make sure there's a meeting agenda. And so the meeting agenda, again, is kind of like the script, you know, for a, for a play or for a movie. And then I've got to decide, you know, who's going to attend the meeting. And I think, I think it's really important that we're careful about who we attend meetings. I think way too many people get invited to meetings that they don't need to be at. We just, we just kind of throw out a net and say, okay, you 20 people, you know, why don't you come to my meeting without thinking more strategically about who should be in that meeting and the number of people that should be in, in that meeting. And then the other component is in, in terms of the meeting itself is, you know, again, having the, the, the right number of people, the right agenda, and then the right leader of the meeting. Not, not everyone is equipped to, to facilitate a meeting. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's certainly more difficult than I think most people uh, know about. You and I have both set in on really bad meetings, I'm sure, and meetings that we're trying to figure out ways to get out of. And so, you know, the, the, we got to make sure the right person is, is leading the meeting. And then the other component that I think is overlooked, if you think of a really good book, really good movie, what's the common denominator there? And it's drama, some amount of drama, some amount of conflict that gets people's interest. And so that's something as I would build an agenda for the meeting is I would ask myself, okay, where's the drama? Where's the conflict? Where is it going to get uncomfortable in this meeting? Because I think that's what draws people. What's what keeps people in a meeting is having a little bit of drama, a little bit of conflict. And then there's sometimes it's the little things that matter in a meeting. And I'll give you an example. One of my uh, rules for a meeting is no empty seats. Because I know when I attend a meeting, if there are a couple empty seats, I'm asking myself, where is that person? Where's Bill? Bill was supposed to be at this meeting, and there's an empty seat. Maybe this isn't such an important meeting if there are empty seats. And so I will always make sure that there are no empty seats. And sometimes I'll even have a shortage of seats so that people show up. They think, wow, more people showed up for this meeting than we thought about. This must be an important meeting. So sometimes it's just the little details that we have to be aware of 
in terms of producing uh, these meetings. So, Tim, it's been great talking to you, just thinking about uh, when you started Small Business Matters, which I think is coming up on on 30 years ago, your own consulting yeah. firm. Uh, you have uh, chaired Vistage Groups for 16 years. Uh, the Growth Smart Training Program that you started way back in 2008, helping business owners really grow smart. Uh, what a you know what a rich uh, career path that you've been, and what a great job you have done. Uh, I know you've certainly made an impact on my life in terms of of helping business owners. Uh, gain direction, gain perspective. Uh, you mentioned earlier a little bit, it's lonely at the top, uh, build in some accountability. Uh, if any of our listening audience uh, either wants to sign up for the Small Business Matters newsletter or get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Sure. And Bill, thank you so much. And, and, and you've been so supportive of our efforts through the years and very much appreciate that as well. So the website is smallbusinessmattersonline.com, and we do a, a publish a monthly newsletter free of charge. Uh, any of uh, your listeners are welcome to come to the website, subscribe uh, to the newsletter. Uh, I also, you mentioned the, uh, the boot camp that I do, or the next Small Business Matters boot camp kicks off, I think it's on August 26th. It's a 40-hour training program geared mostly towards the small business owner or the, the leader in a, in, a, in a small business, but would certainly uh, encourage your listeners to check out the website, check out our newsletter, be happy to, to add you to that list. Well, Tim, thanks so much for coming on Profit Sense today. This has been a uh, great time spent with you and with all the other uh, Uh, all the other interviewees. Very welcome, Bill. Thank you. If you want to keep up with the latest in pro-business news, follow us on social media for the latest stories. If you want to listen to future ProfitSense podcasts, you can find us on ProfitSenseRadio.com. This is ProfitSense with Bill McDermott signing off. Make it a great day.